This episode of the Vine Pair Podcast is sponsored by the Prisoner Wine Company. Elevate the holidays with the Prisoner Wine Company. From daring red blends to lively white wines to juicy rosés, the Prisoner Wine Company's portfolio of curiosity-peaking wines is right at home at the dinner table, under the tree, and beyond. Head to theprisonerwinecompany.com to shop now and order by December 14th to receive in time for the holidays. Vine Pairs New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. And it's Friday. Yes. And I'm feeling good. Good. Yeah. We love a we love yeah. a cheery Adam to start the yeah. pod. Friday, holiday season, it snowed. Oh it's not really. It not just really. flurried. It flurried. It dusted. It flurried. Didn't even dust. It <laughs> stuck. Dust. But you know, it just <laughs> feels like, like it's going to be, you know, it's great. Getting early, into early, early December, mid-December, like the flurries are enough. I feel like it's when people, we hit like January and it hasn't, if it hasn't snowed, people are like, okay, I need the real stuff now. If you're a snow person. I'm if not you're a snow, a snow person. person. Yeah. yeah. Snow people. <sighs> the movie. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm not a snow person. Yeah. I feel I'm like the skiers are snow people. I'm not a skier. Yeah. No, not into it. But you know, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, doing anything, for, anyone doing anything fun for the weekend? No. Nothing? <laughs> some Hanukkah, you know? We got some Hanukkah celebrations yeah. over in yeah. our neck of the woods. Yeah, man. Fry that shit up. I'm, yeah, Caitlin makes donuts every year. It's always exciting. Oh, Love, love nice. me a good donut. I wish I would make donuts, mm. but I don't. It's a big undertaking. I don't want to well, send me donuts. <laughs> the thing about the donuts is this is like one of the three or four times a year where I actually like bust out the deep fryer, mm-hmm. which was one of the things we put on our wedding registry, assuming no one would buy it for us. And then someone did, which was very nice of them. Thank you. But uh, it is a <laughs> deeply impractical thing for home use in a lot of ways, but it is kind of the only Stay way to get night. donuts right. Stay yeah, right. French, it's like French fries, fried chicken, donuts are basically the only things I ever make in it. I love that you put it on your registry, though. That's so fun. You gotta swing. It. You gotta take big swings. Yeah, man. <laughs> but nothing else. Nothing else for you, Joanna. No, like crazy time. No crazy time. I never have a crazy time. No, I don't know. We're gonna decorate a tree. Cool. Maybe have a little eggnog. Uh, no. You're not an eggnog fan. No, not that I'm not a fan. Oh, I, I wanted you to be on my side. I fucking hate it. I don't hate it. It's I, disgusting. I have it when it's around, but like it, it's never around, and little, I don't buy it or whiskey, make it. A little whiskey. I want to make some fire. hot chocolate, boozy hot chocolate. Ooh, That's yeah. what I'm gonna do. Or maybe it, maybe a rest, one of the recipes from our cocktail countdown. I like that. That's Some good. of those have uh, jumped out to me. Yeah, so. those are pretty good. Mm-hmm. Those are pretty good. What about you, Adam? Are you going to have uh, crazy plans this weekend? No. <laughs> I'm going to a funeral. So, <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah, yeah, oh, my God. Serious. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, I'm sorry. I mean, that yeah. doesn't mean it couldn't involve drinking, to be clear, depending no, on the kind of funeral. Uh, yeah. It's not awake, let's be clear. Uh, and I'm going to make some latkes okay. at some point, but yeah. N- nothing nothing crazy. I no. feel like I was just set up there. Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Shh, it down. Anyways, on this Friday, everybody get ready. Uh, no, but what, what, are you, what are you guys read on the site? I'll go first. I think actually one of the highlights for me was, it's always interesting to me when I see a, a, a piece about a part of like the kind of cocktail era and culture that I, I was sort of unaware of. And uh, mm. in this case, I'm referring to Rich Manning's piece about the Hey Bartender documentary. Um and, you know, there's been a lot of of ink spilled and I guess in this case, whatever, celluloid or whatever the thing is, um, 
dig, you know, digital files, frankly, uh, capturing that sort of early 2000s kind of cocktail renaissance period of time. Uh, and I, I got to be honest, I read this piece and I was like, how was I completely unaware of this uh, documentary? But I, I am maybe one of my weekend plans will be actually uh, finding a way to watch this and uh, enjoy it because it, it is interesting to think about how still deeply influential some of the bars bartenders and just ethos of that era remains you know two decades later so yeah. kind of interesting and i think that you know the documentary is a window into it even though it, it was itself made almost a decade after the start of that um sort of wave of cocktail mm-hmm. revitalization joanna and you? how much of it doesn't actually hold up that yeah. too yeah yeah totally <laughs> Um, I really like, well, we published a lot of great stuff on the site. I want to mention our 30 best breweries piece that went up yesterday, but I really liked Aaron Goldfarb's piece from earlier this week (laughs) about if it's worth trying cocktails at their like bar of origin. Right. Like where they were invented. Yeah. Where they were invented. And as someone who does pursue this more often than not, I I really enjoy this piece because <laughs> I don't think they're they're very good. Like Never. for for classic cocktails, right, where the person who created it is not still alive and the bar has just people making it. Um, yeah, they're not very good ever. Ever. <laughs> but it's still fun to go. And as like Robert Simonson said in this piece, like it's part of the pursuit, right? It's part of the fun and the challenge of going to these places. Yeah. I mean, I think my thing with going to the source is often it's packed because the place is famous, right? Especially if it's a really – so Harry's Bar, right? Like Mm -hmm. famous because the Bellini was invented there. I don't know anybody, by the way, that ever orders a Bellini. (laughs) I've never seen it. Can you imagine? I, like I never see Bellinis. I, mean, like I think nobody orders cocktail, it unless it's of, on the menu. Like, yeah, it's a brunch cocktail. Yeah, but I never even see it at brunch. I'm like everyone's like mimosa to the face yeah. or Bloody Mary. Uh, but like where Aaron also goes to the, the place where the blood and like again not that great. Um, I I think they're always overcrowded. Yes, they're phoned in and nobody really cares that much. You just like want to be there having the drink. Um, I think you know the other the other place I think it's kind of underwhelming for the most part is often bars he didn't say this one but I will say it uh, is bars that are like owned by brands it's like this is the brand home of X bar like so you know there, there's there's a few like Campari has their own bar in Milan I have not been to that one but like ones where like they're they're like oh this is where our whole ethos became what it is or whatever and they're making their classic and they're usually not that great either um yeah, I just I've never gone to a place where the drink was invented and thought, "Damn, yeah. that's awesome." Mm-hmm. You know, never, never. But it's still fun to say that you had a Singapore sling at the Raffles Hotel. Yes, in I like. Singapore. To, I still like to do it. Yeah, like that's the thing. I, I I don't think it's not worth it. I just think it's you have to understand that you're going to be underwhelmed. Yeah, you might you might have the the most historically accurate experience, and then an hour later go to a different bar and have a much better cocktail. Like, yes. that's just kind of how it works. I mean, I talked about it for yeah. Tim's wedding, like, going to the Caribe Hilton. Like, yeah. the p- pina colada was not good. I mean, it was fine, but it was not – it should have been, like, one of the best pina coladas I've ever had. Mm-hmm. And instead, 
as as Aaron says, like the Long Island bar does a better version. There's a lot of places to do a better version of it. Yeah, because they those bars want to perfect it, and they take if they're putting it on their menu, they're taking it seriously. It's almost like the places where it was invented, they have to have it now. Yeah, and it's just like okay, like and now how do we make it at volume? Yeah, you know, and so that's that's what there's just, no care. No, that's what's gonna happen. Yeah, the Vucare that I had at the Carousel Bar. I had it as well. It was the, probably one of the worst drinks I've ever had in my life. I actually don't think that's a good bar. It's a good bar either. Hot take. I think the carousel bar is a shit bar. Well, it's very gimmicky, right? Yeah, but, but like people like, like it. I think that's what's so funny about like cocktail people is I think, it's, I think this is pretty typical of everybody, right? Like anyone that's in an industry, right? It's like you, you know these places suck, but there's such nostalgia. Whether it's like, I don't know. Certain places in Paris that used to be known for where everyone would drink wine, now they're kind of lame and whatever. People still want to go there. Mm-hmm. Or same with certain cocktail locations, right? I think of this as Breweries. like restaurants with a view, right? Yeah. Like there's yeah. a restaurant on top of the Space Needle here, and I never recommend that as a place for people to go dine. But if you would like to eat your meal you know, 500 feet above the ground as the restaurant slowly rotates, like cool, do that. You're just not going to have Nick the best Sorley's. meal you can have. McSorley's is a good example. You know, like, yeah. cool, good for you. They have sawdust on the floor. It sucks. I feel like Peter Luger's like that, too. Ooh, that's a hot take. Kind of. Like, oh, it's part of the gimmick that they're going to scream at you and tell you you can only use cash. Yeah, but I like the steak. I know. I, I feel like we're going to end up just, just like, shit-talking a bunch of establishments. Uh, Adam, was there an article you liked on the site this week? Oh. Yes. Okay, fine. <laughs> want to be honest it's friday yeah, we gotta so, rein uh, things in a touch so so the one that i liked is, is one we've talked we talked about in the office a bunch and uh i'm glad we saw it come to fruition which is basically i've noticed this obviously brad jaffe's noticed this as well that really it feels to me like if you are in the bar industry at this point in time and you are trying to go to the place where you think you will be with other bartenders that are at the height of their career the top bartenders in the world you are not going to New York. You are not going to Singapore. You are going to London. Mm-hmm. And London has really, you know, positioned itself over the last decade as the best place in the world for cocktails. Um, and while it's been a very long time since I've been to London, like six or seven years now, yes. the amount of these bars that are winning all of the awards, uh, that have bartenders that are then going on to do really big things, is much bigger than even. New York, San Francisco, Portland, et cetera, mm-hmm. um, which were cities that were really seen in Seattle as the – just giving that to you, Zach. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. We're, we're seen as cities that, like, helped reinvigorate the cocktail movement in the early aughts, right? But, like, partly London was always doing it, always. right? Like, yep. there, there were always martinis being made, right? There were always people who were drinking really great cocktails in their hotels, et cetera, right? They did not have prohibition. Mm-hmm. And then – what they took from our cocktail renaissance was how to then update and reimagine cocktails in London, but they didn't start the cocktail movement again, where we started it again. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot more history that has been there and a lot more sort of people think, you know, pomp and circumstance and things like that. Uh, just, I think, to be honest, there's a lot fancier bars there. Yeah. Um, and then you have the bars that are also cool kid like you know a bar with shapes for a name and right. things like that which are great or mr lion but you at, at the really famous like cannot bar etc like they, they dress in beautiful uniforms and it's like an incredible experience and i think that is what sort of 
has helped it can because you can kind of be whatever kind of mixologist you want to be. Like I, there's not really a bar in New York right now where if you're saying I want to go to like a bar where I can provide service that's at a Michelin star level. There's not really a bar I think that exists in New York that does that. That's not at a Michelin star restaurant, right? Where it's like the bar, like all the bartenders are in white jackets and they're taking everything very seriously. And it's a, it's a very obviously expensive and fancy experience right now. If you want to be in New York, you're either at a really cool kid, uh, party cocktail bar or sort of like a speakeasy s cocktail bar, or dens that take it, you know, the Death and Co's and things in the world, which are great places, but like, again, not the just super high end hotel bar where you walk in. And there's just several of those in London. You don't think like Shinji's or Martini's is like that? I think they're still different. I think, again, the, the nice thing about some of these other bars is that there's this still inclusiveness of them being, they're usually the, the lobby bar of the hotel. And then they're just awesome. Yeah. And, you know, people from, all over the world, even post Brexit, are going to London to still be bartenders. Right yeah. there, you know the the guy. The, what made me start thinking about this story uh, when we first started talking about it internally was like the bartender I knew that won the Patron Perfectionist competition, who was one of the top bartenders in Sydney, mm-hmm. was you know basically knew he could kind of go anywhere. Then he was on the radar of a lot of places, and he goes to London. Mm. You know, now he's in Paris, but whatever. He like he goes to London. A lot of people I know, the a woman who is a top bartender in Edinburgh goes to London, right? Amsterdam, they go to London. Lots of people in the states go to London. And yes, we do have people that come here. I think if if we probably polled in New York, I would say that the majority of people that come here that aren't American bartenders are probably from Australia, um, but not to the level of the the amount of people from all over the world going. And I think that's really really interesting. And I thought it was a fun piece. Yeah. So I also want to mention that our best champagne list dropped. Well, this I mean, that week. goes without saying that was a great piece. Come yes. On. And if you want to see some really fun videos of some of the wines on that list, you should go to YouTube and watch Keith talk about them. Yeah, you should. So we want to react to another article that's not on our <laughs> site, but on a different site that we saw because we're making the rounds on the the it's called X now. Fuck. Wait, I can't so believe you're stupid. I can't believe you're Deigning to admit you actually looked at said site. No, Adam. someone else looked at it and told oh, okay, me about okay, it because okay, I okay. refuse to support that motherfucker. And now I will never buy it. To be it fair, you hated it long before he bought it. So this is, this yeah, is not inconsistent. I hated with it, your but channel. I also hate him. So now, like, I mean, you know. Yeah, I'm, double up. I'm, I'm totally doubling up. I mean, I'm not going to get on threads either, but whatever. Keith, Keith threads for me. Uh, <laughs> so basically, there was an article that was published by another publication where the writer basically took the stance completely wrong. That, in fact, the wine world should not be paying attention to millennials and uh, even Gen X, he says, and Gen Z, but should refocus its efforts on boomers and that they are the generation that is buying wine and they are the generation that is responsible for the growth in wine. And so they are the generation that should be the that should be the generation that is taken care of because he feels like at this point in time that generation is neglected. What a bunch of horseshit. <laughs> like I don't think this person under this this screamed to me like I know that we get accused like of being the the millennials that complain all the we're time. We're very ageist. Yes, and we're very ageist mm-hmm. and whatever. But this just like this I think this person is delusional. Yeah, I think that I get it, right? I get 
saying this, right, where everybody's talking about how wine is wine is in trouble, like they can't they can't uh, reach these younger consumers. So I get the idea of like, actually, here's a really bright idea. Like you're neglecting all of these older consumers and there are a lot of them. And uh, this is a huge this is a new idea for you, wine. Like go <laughs> go try to convert all of these old older consumers to wine and your problem will be solved. And I think that, yeah, I don't know if it's delusional. It just it just doesn't it, it just doesn't seem to make sense to me, I guess, because part of the argument is also that, uh, you know, Sorry, there, there was one piece that said it was a, a rapidly expanding army of older consumers. And uh, they have this really real, they have a penchant for brand loyalty. We've talked about this on the yeah, pod before, right? Like our parents have brands that they've been drinking for years and they'll never give them up. So, and they're, they're available, right? Like wine can capture these older, this army of older consumers. But, but th- that just feels like a very flawed argument because... You know, theoretically, these people have the brands that they're already loyal to, and you're not going to capture them as they get older. Or just imagine which hypothetical person are we talking about who is in their mid-60s, has been of legal drinking age in this country for well over 40 years, and is like, oh, wine. wine before. (laughs) Maybe I should give that a try. I I saw a nice ad. And and now wine seems like a good choice. Like the the silly thing about this is that that the demographic that that represents you know whatever baby boomers or people over fifty five or whatever has been marketed to by every conceivable element of consumer culture, every conceivable beverage alcohol yeah. brand for decades. And for the most part, if they're not wine drinkers now, they are unlikely to become. They're not them. gonna be them. Yeah. And that's the thing is, it's like, yeah, you can look at this big population and say, ah, you know, many wine drinkers are are older. They have more disposable income. All those things are true. But again, those people are already buying wine. The other thing about this that's so silly is, it also presumes a sort of static. Like, yes, if you're, I mean, this is what we've been talking about on the pod. If you're a wine brand in 2023 trying to maximize profits for 2023, probably makes sense to target the demographic that is most clearly wine uh, loving and has a lot of disposable income. But mm-hmm. if you're looking at your business or your category on any kind of time scale, there are some uh, unavoidable negatives to marketing to the oldest cohort. Yeah. We don't have to get into what those are. And so to me, it's, it's that. And it's a, then this person cites in this article that like, oh, well, by 2040, one in five Americans will be over 65. But many of those people are in their late 40s and early 50s now are the exact people you're telling wine to disregard. Are they, again, suddenly going to be persuadable 15, you know, 20 years from now that they should start liking wine after wine has, you know, following this advice, ignored them? Like, that's just ridiculous. Yeah. I think it's just, like, very short-sighted to say that you should disregard any demographic, right, at this point for wine. And I think... I th- I th- a part of the article that I thought was really interesting was that he cited a study from Wine Market Council on how wineries can transform occasional wine drinkers over 60 and strengthen brand loyalty. And the ideas were expand your current DTC wine club options and create more innovative ones, which I don't know. I think about like people of my parents' generation, like, do they really want DTC? No, my parents go to the liquor store and that's yeah. how they buy alcohol. Yeah. Uh, Another idea. Provide wine options and advertisements that more closely match lifestyles and interests of older consumers. 
Like, can you imagine being a wine brand now and kind of pivoting your marketing strategy to only target older consumers and no, it the seems idiotic wide va- like group of people that you will be ignoring and alienating by doing that? Yeah. But also, like, what are the brands and what are the, like, lifestyle moments that wine, like, this is already happening. Like, look at how wine is pitched, right? It's pitched in many cases as, like, you know, a thing you enjoy with a nice meal, a thing that you, like, savor with friends and family. Like, that's, I mean, those are not things that only older people like. But, like, it's not like wine is, like, yo, like, let's drink wine while we skateboard or whatever because I'm 40 (laughs) and almost now. And that's how things were pitched to when I was young. But, like, whatever whatever it is, like, we, we, you know. It's very clear that wine has very, very few wines or very few brands have any idea how to market to younger people, but they know really well how to market to older people because they've been doing it forever. No, I think that he thinks that there should be a partnership with the villages. Maybe. And again, the individual <laughs> like, I brands, don't, I don't, that's, that's all maybe I, a good I, idea. Maybe I like a, a pickleball sponsorship or something? Yeah. Actually, pickleball is getting young. It's, uh, every, it's, but, all, it's all ages, but yes, a lot of old people ages. on the pickleball yeah, courts by me. Pickleball is for everybody. Although I've never played pickleball. But I do think that it's also the logic as well that like ultimately people will – it, 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 it reinforces logic that's totally wrong, which is that older people will just age in. Mm-hmm. That has been proven to not be true with so many different luxury products. Like they don't just age in. You have to start talking to them early and this argument is to abandon talking to them early because it will just happen, which is kind of the idea that we've talked about on this podcast for a very long time now that the wine industry has already had, which is like, well, at some point people will make enough money and they'll just, they'll settle down and, you know, they'll have some kids and they'll have their golden retriever and they'll have a, they'll be in the suburbs and they'll just look at their partner and say, you know what, hun? I don't want that cocktail that mar you know that martini I've been having every night. I think it just feels like you know it's time for a glass of red. That's not going to happen. You know we've just we've achieved so much. I looked at our four hundred one k and it's just it's at the level that it needs to be, and it's time for wine. We're wine people now. Yeah, like that's not how it works. Yeah. Like again, to to recite all the studies, right? People who aren't saving and making less than $100,000 a year are still are over half of all luxury consumers in America. Like, get off of the shit, right? Like, you have to talk to them now. But I think also this this just comes at a time when there does – look, I get it. If you're a listener of this podcast and you are not a millennial, I understand that we, you can seem like we're attacking often. Mm-hmm. And I understand that can feel that way a lot when you read – the articles about the next generation's coming. But like as a millennial, I feel that way now about Gen Z. Like they're the next cool shit. And <laughs> I and I do recognize as a marketer and owner of a media company that we do need to talk to them as well. Mm-hmm. Or Vinepair becomes irrelevant after millennials are gone, right? Like yeah. that's how it is. You have to start talking to them now. We need them to read Vinepair now, which they are. But I think that that's the same thing with wine and you know, no one wants to feel like they, they their time has come and gone. Yeah. And so that's where I feel like this was coming from. But I don't think that that's actually what the case, right? I think I think wine companies are very, very, very grateful for this the older generation, boomers specifically, for having been so receptive to wine and so uh, loyal to it. Yeah. And I think that they should still do things that reinforce that loyalty, whether it's, you know, sponsoring pickleball or making sure that they're available on their, you know, the, the cruise they're taking to Alaska or, you know, making sure that Florida is a, a, a area that they're covering. But, you know, these, <laughs> sorry, just all the stereotypes. Oh my 
But, <laughs> you know, but it all, it all. Podcasts at vinepair.com. <laughs> Come at me. But, but all, you know, but all of these things, I don't know, like making sure that like, there's advertisements when they go to the proctologist and stuff. Like, I oh think that God. these things are important. Well, I have but, a question for you, though. So do you think diabetes that. Diabetes medicine and wine. <laughs> oh my God. Do you think that, you know, wine would, say a wine brand has historically done well with an older generation yeah. and suddenly now they they need to pivot and they need to start speaking to a younger generation like do they then alienate so the- i think there is that fear yeah i think there is that fear i i've heard from marketers that they're scared of that happening but again i i, I actually don't think that that generation pays attention to the marketing anymore they're already brand loyal like as and I, so i will tell you from from Working at lots of different media companies in my career and with lots of different brands and uh, even with VinePair, we – okay, so 75% of our audience, right, is millennial, Gen Z and young, what we call young Gen X, right? Mm-hmm. But we have 25% of other readers, right? Who do you think they are? They're old Gen X and boomers. And when you survey those readers – and this was the, the case when I was at the the news publication that I worked at um, – you know, when I worked at advertising, et cetera, when you would survey the older generation about why they read the publication, a lot of times the answer you would get is because young people read it and I want to I feel hip and cool. Hmm. And I think that's – I don't think that there actually are a lot of the people who say don't market to younger. They actually say, oh, that's cool, so I'm still relevant the brand that I like is now talking to the next generation. I'm actually still I'm still drinking the cool brand. Mm-hmm. My parents don't want to feel like, you know, all of a sudden they're they're being put out to pasture and everything they thought was was cool and great and amazing is now really fucking lame. They like to know that like the brands that they my dad thought it was so fucking cool that I bought a Filson briefcase too. Oh really? Yeah. Is that Be- an old brand? Yeah, Filson's a very old brand. Oh, I didn't it's from know that. Seattle, right? Right, uh, Zach. Filson is a Seattle brand, and so is Pickleball, by the way, invented here. Oh, cool. See, I, I love that you just piped in to let us know. But yeah, so my dad thought that was so great. And like, honestly, dusted off his Filson and started carrying it again. Mm-hmm. And I think that those are – marketing is – the way that marketing works, we want to own products that may, that project who we are about ourselves and that basically make us feel with it and cool. No one wants to – unless you're like, I don't know, a very small – percentage of people that like want to feel so weird that they're carrying the shit that no one else wants to carry or drinking and eating the stuff that everyone else thinks is a little odd we're a pack animals right we're, we're a pack species that's why we mate for life we want to have families we want to be t- surrounded by people for the most part that's how human beings are and we want to feel like the thing we all we all have no one thinks no old person thinks you know what Apple only is marketing to a younger generation. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna have, have an, an Apple product anymore. No, they feel like they're hip because they also have iPhones. So I actually think that if a lot of these wine brands continue to market to a, market to a younger generation, which they need to do, the people that are loyal at the top will continue to stay loyal, and it'll actually reinforce that loyalty because it is saying to their generation, "Oh wow, I'm still drinking a wine that is relevant," mm-hmm. as opposed to what they're being told right now, which is no one who's young thinks that Napa Cab is cool anymore. You're a fucking old fogey, and you drink big ass wines uh, and fall asleep at five o'clock. 
But if the Napa Cab started talking to Gen Z and Gen Z started drinking it, they'd be like, no, I'm still relevant, which yeah. they should be doing. Sorry. I mean, done. we definitely see a lot of this kind of, you know, whatever, a thing is out, then it's back in kind of circularity of trends. And that, that's no, you know, wine and beverage is no different. I do think that wine in particular has had a, a, a maybe unfortunate tendency over the last couple of decades of sort of using the the construction of like, oh, this isn't the wine that your parents drink as a way ah, to sort of sell yeah. yes, newer that's true. things. And obviously, it's far from the only category that behaves that way. But I do think that, you know, especially, you know, especially whether it, you know, I think there's, I think that part of it can feel, you know, confrontational, right? The like decisions that, you know, other brands are making or have made, you know, or other categories have made to kind of go after the, you know, the behemoths of the industry, whether they're, you know, big companies, individual brands, regions, et cetera, have sometimes been pitched as like, hey, that's wine for old people with bat with old taste and we're the new thing for young people. But again, that kind of marketing happening happens everywhere. And I tend to agree that broadly speaking, there's no reason that most brands can't talk to both to all demographics that are of legal drinking age with a compelling pitch. If the wine is good. And in a lot of cases it is. Yeah. 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 I, I, I think that Zach hits on a very important point here, which is that often the way that marketing works for brands that stay relevant for all generations. It's just that the the brand starts talking to the next generation using messaging, et cetera, that feels more relevant to them, uh, advertising in the publications that they read, yeah. uh, showing up in the spaces that they are, but not trying to come off as, you know, the we think that we think the boomers suck, right? And I and I do think that that Again, that's the key, right? That that, ha- that has <laughs> happened a lot in wine, and we've I've already beaten this horse dead as well, which is that I just I don't know where all of the marketing talent is in wine, but it doesn't seem to be as prevalent as in some of the other areas. Um, maybe that's why this has happened. Um, I think that there is more marketing talent in wine than there used to be. Mm. Um, I think maybe 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 it doesn't pay as well, right? Like the right. a salary in spirits for a marketing executive is is quite good right six figures coming out of business school you know doing doing pretty well especially some of the major companies i i actually don't know besides the big wine companies what the salaries are um but i i would anticipate that some of them are below six figures Mm -hmm. um at least starting so you know you're not attracting the same kind of people um not caliber of talent etc which i I get it's hard wine wine cries poor all the time um which again is true doesn't make as much experience margins aren't there but i think that the the kind of messaging that just is talking to the next generation is uh is is very valid for an older generation right it still it doesn't turn them off at all and i don't think that that generation is going to miss not see, you know seeing not seeing their wine advertised they like in the rob report they're not going to miss it cuz you know what they're also collecting watches and yachts and whatever like they they're not going to be like, oh shit! Where did uh, X Napa Cab go? Oh, uh, you know, I, I I'm not going to drink it anymore. No, they're not. They're going to still feel like it's relevant because now it's talking to the new generation of people that are movers and shakers, etc. As long as that wine doesn't say, "Hey, we're cool now. We don't we don't fuck with boomers." Mm-hmm. Right. Explicitly. Exactly. Yeah. Anyways, let us know what you think. Come at me. <laughs> Podcast of Do you have your timeshare yet? If not, better think about it.
<laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm curious to hear what people think about this. I'm also never moving to Florida. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Never. <laughs> I think I don't think they let you in at this point, Adam. <laughs> that's okay. That's totally okay. Really. <laughs> All right. I have a great weekend. Talk to you guys on Monday. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So the Vine Pair podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington in Zach Chabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair podcast network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Visit theprisonerwinecompany.com to explore all their offerings this holiday season. And remember, ground shipping is included on all gift set purchases. Order by December 14th to receive in time for the holidays.